Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are eternal. Uh, there is no time with you. You're outside of time. But Lord, we're locked in time. That's the way that you created us. You created a, um, a, a timeline for all of us and uh, in this world. We thank you, Lord, that you're in control of it all. And Lord, as we have turned the page to uh, 2023, we don't know what's going to happen even tomorrow, even the rest of the day, but you know exactly what's happening because you live in the future. Lord, we want to recommit our lives to you as followers of Christ, your dear son, the one who gave himself for us completely on the cross, who cried out, it's finished because he took all of our sin upon himself. Lord, right now he is with you. He is at your right hand. He's ruling and reigning. It's just a matter of time till all enemies are under his feet. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live our lives in subjection to him. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you what you will continue to do in this world. Help us, Lord, to be your faithful, loyal followers and to love you more and to serve you better because you loved us first. I pray now, Lord, as, to, as we begin to open uh, the gospel of Luke, help us, Lord Jesus, to understand a little bit about the background and then to take what you're going to help us to understand today and to our lives and to use it for your glory, for your honor, in Jesus' name, amen. So where were you when the book, The Da Vinci Code, came out a number of years ago? Dan Brown's bestseller rocked the world and the faith of many people, to include those whom I thought were strong Christians who loved the Lord. We were in Italy at the time, stationed at Aviano Air Base. I was at a bowling facility, and a faithful member of the chapel community that I was leading approached me, and he was hacked, very angry. He was recently exposed to Brown's book. He bought one of the subplots that that book was selling, that there should be many more writings in the New Testament than the 27 books that we have. Many writings were excluded, he said, this book because of a massive cover-up of, quote-unquote, the truth. Simply put, we have been deceived. This is Brown's uh, contention in his book, because of a massive suppression of the truth. Now, according to the author, the Da Vinci Code was a novel, but it was based on a lot of so-called research. For example, according to Brown, documents exist which show Jesus was married. And not to the church, but to a woman. And he and Mary Magdalene had children. But before we get too far into this, happy new year, (laughs) y'all. And welcome to our brand new study in the gospel according to Luke. If you've been with us for a little while, you know that toward the end of last year, we finished up our series of an Old Testament gospel, the gospel according to Moses, where it took us almost a year and a half, remember this, to get through the book of Deuteronomy. And so now we turn the corner, and we're going to spend a number of weeks, months, maybe a little bit longer, going through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to savor the words and the deeds of our Savior and Lord, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon coming King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus the Messiah. So why Luke? And why now? Well, first and foremost, the Lord gave us all who know Christ and more importantly, those who Christ knows the responsibility and privilege concerning his word. 
He wants us to know, understand, and apply his word to our lives. And over the years, since we've been Grace United, it dawned on me some time back that we have yet to go through even one of the four Gospels. And I thought that was kind of strange because, you know, after all, Christians follow Christ. Isn't that true? And the Gospels are the foundational documents to help us know who Jesus is and what he said and what he did. And so it was an easy decision for me to go from Deuteronomy into the New Testament and to go through a Gospel. And the question was, which one? And the solution to that was, just pick one. And so why Luke? Because I chose it. Why? Because I can. <laughs> now, eventually, as the Lord allows, we're going to go through all four Gospels. You know, should the Lord not come back for a little while? Uh, but that time is not now. We're just going to go through Luke this time. And so as I begin to prepare for this series, I did what a pastor challenged me to do by his example. And one of the things he habitually would do before he would preach through a book, regardless of how long it was, he would read it through ten times. And each time he would read it through in one sitting. Can you imagine the Psalms? And though I haven't read Luke through ten times or haven't listened to it on one of my audio Bibles ten times, uh, it is my goal. I'm, I'm more than halfway done, and so it's a good thing. But I discovered it takes about two and a half hours in one sitting to go through the Gospel of Luke. Not very much time, right? Right? <laughs> right, yes, right, yes. And so I want to present to you a monumental challenge. And the challenge is to read the entire Gospel of Luke this week, preferably in one sitting. But now you can listen to it on audio, you know, on your favorite version. You know, there's a bunch of them out there, you know, or sit and, and, and read it. But when you listen to it, should you choose to do that, do it intentionally. Don't just play it and then do, use it for background noise. Okay, don't do that. But intentionally listen to what it says. You know, and, and two and a half hours is about the average length of a movie, right? But if you find that you can't do it in one setting, just do it uh, like 30 minutes a day for five days. And so pray that the Lord would give you an excitement to dig into his word. Start the year off right by immersing yourself in the Word of God. But back to the Da Vinci Code and how the enemy has used it to undermine the confidence that even followers of Christ ought to have in the authority of His Word. The attempt to undermine the confidence in God's Word goes something like this, in the form of a couple of questions. Why is it that the Bible contains 66 writings, no more and no less? And why Genesis through Revelation and not some other writings? So after all, there were many other things that were written back in the day. Would you agree? Why these? See, these are big questions that those who you know think long and hard about that. Some, a lot of it's just taken for granted. This is the word of God. I'm going to trust it, etc. But some really do have an issue. Some really have problems with this. But we must continually. Regardless of where we are on the, on the scale with this, we must continually recommit ourselves to the conviction, conviction that Peter had when he wrote this statement in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him 
who called us according to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, what? His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. In other words, God has given us everything we need. Where? In the book. And everything from cover to cover is inspired by God. And also we need to commit ourselves as well on a daily basis if need be about this statement from the Old Testament. Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is what? Finish it. Perfect. Perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise simple. How about you, but I'm pretty simple. I need God's word. You know, down through the years, the enemy of our souls has used many weapons, hasn't he, to serve in both subtle ways and in frontal assaults, attacking the authority of the word of God. With the wildly popular Da Vinci Code book, at least back in the day, wildly popular, and the movie as well. I don't know if you've seen it or heard about it, but they actually had a movie based upon that book. And these are just more recently relatively big salvos that the enemy has used to undermine the authority of his word. And so we're back to the very first question that's recorded in Scripture, found in the book of Genesis. And what was that question? Did God really say? Now, we all know who asked that question. It was the tempter, Satan. And the old adage is true, isn't it? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the enemy has been using this question ever since to divert our attention away from or even outright deny our need to submit to and to live out the word of God that we have pledged allegiance to. Or at least I'm hoping we've all pledged allegiance to the word of God. And so all this to say that when I began to prepare to lead us into the gospel of Luke, I was kind of stopped short and I was confronted with some, shall I say, surprises in my research. Surprises that caused me to say, hmm. So let me give you some of these surprises that I found and then some answers to the questions that were raised because of these surprises. And then I want to help us to quickly walk through the contents of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to take a whirlwind tour today of this Gospel. It's going to be fast, and it's going to be good, though, I think. And so I want us to give us a little bit of a taste of what we're going to get ourselves into and over probably the next year. And I want to highlight a couple of things that these chapters contain, just real briefly. Now, obviously, we won't have enough time or I don't have enough space to put down everything that's in those chapters, obviously. So I just want to point out a couple of things. And then along with the content, I want to point out some of the things that surprised me as having read through, you know, from from start to finish the Gospel of Luke and some of the dots that I was able to connect by doing this. And so I have two goals for us today as we go through this, and prayerfully they'll be accomplished today by the time we finish the message. And the first goal is this, that we will have an increased confidence that the Gospel according to Luke is indeed part of the complete revelation of God, breathed out by him and given to us that we might know him better, that we might know ourselves better, and that we might know and understand how to live in his world. And second, that the Lord would motivate us to take the gospel of Luke into our very soul, that he would make us excited to read, to understand, and then to apply 
this most vital part of God's word to our lives. So, you ready? Let's get going here. And the first surprise I encountered in preparing this message was the limited amount of information available about Luke himself. Who was this guy? See, he was a Gentile, of course. Most of us know that. But he was not an apostle. I don't know if you knew that. And we think about the writers of the New Testament, Testament, and we suppose that they were all written by Jews. After all, they were following the Jewish Messiah. And we think about the writers of the Old Testament as well. They were all Jewish. But when we take into account the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and since Luke wrote both of them, as we know, over 25% of the New Testament was written by him. This Gentile, who wasn't even an apostle. So how is that? What's up with this? And so as we're going to see today, that what he wrote down was not an eyewitness account. He wrote down the results of his meticulous research that he did, assembling an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Now, a lot of people back in the day claimed to have had experiences with Jesus, and sometimes they wrote down these things. And there were also writings that bore the names of the apostles. Now, they they didn't write these, kind of like clickbait. But back then, they didn't have the Internet, obviously. And so they put the names on these writings to see, hey, maybe uh, they'll read these writings. For example, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip or even the Gospel of Judas. Now, Luke chose not to include the material in his book. So again, who was Luke and what authority did his gospel and the book of Acts claim to have to be included in the 27 writings? that we call the New Testament. For starters, Paul mentioned Luke in several places in his letters. And it's interesting that every time specifically he's included, it's during the times that Paul was in jail. And the last time his name was included is when Paul was on on death row in Mamertine prison in Rome. And I find this significant as we read this. He says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Again, when, when Paul was there in the prison in Rome writing Second Timothy, his days were numbered and he knew it. He was not going to get out of there alive. Luke was there with him at those, in those days. Luke was Paul's faithful friend, perhaps witnessing Paul's martyrdom for the sake of Christ. Second, there are several places in the book of Acts when Luke says, we. These are called by the very sophisticated, learned men and women. <laughs> The we passages. It's kind of fun. Now, Paul and Luke traveled together, and he was a personal eyewitness of Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. And you see him on the screen listed there. You want to write some of those down. But now a skeptical person might say, you know what? That's all well and good. But this does not prove that Luke's writings had the authority to make it into the New Testament. Though much needs to be said here, and I wish that we could, the clock runs too fast here at Grace United. So we're going to have to go on. But let me give you one strong piece of evidence that a lot of people have discovered. And they and they said, here is one of the primary reasons why Luke should be included. And the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. It was a document dated from the early part of the second century. And the learned guys simply called this document the prologue to the Gospels. Now, let me give you some of what this writer said about Luke's life and about his writings. Indeed, Luke was from Antioch, a doctor by profession, 
a disciple of the apostles. Later, he followed Paul until his martyrdom, serving the Lord blamelessly. He never had a wife. He never fathered children. And he died at 84 years of age, full of the Holy Spirit in Boeta, which is the central part of Greece. Therefore, the, the guy goes on, the writer goes on, although the Gospels had already been written by Matthew in Judea and Mark in Italy, Luke, moved by the Holy Spirit, wrote down this Gospel in the parts of Achaia. It was the, of greatest importance for him to expound with the greatest diligence everything for Greek believers so that they would not be led astray by the lure of Jewish fables or seduced by the fables of the heretics and stupid solicitations to fall away from the truth. And then he finishes up this part by saying, and indeed afterwards, the same Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles. So again, a very early testimony about the four Gospels that we have in our Bible. And what I just quoted, he also included some things, the Gospel of John, but I didn't quote them here because of time. But very briefly, let me give you some information about some of the other Gospels that didn't make the cut, as it were, to let you know some of the reasons why the spiritual leaders of the early church rejected them. Those who do the research say that they were able to trace about 36 Gospels back back there in the day. The Gospel of Judas, for example, was rejected by the church fathers because the author, of course not Judas Iscariot, describes Judas as Jesus' favorite disciple. (laughs) A second rejected gospel is not about Jesus at all, but has obvious ties to him. And this gospel is called the gospel of the birth of Mary. Now this document was part of the reason why Mary was selected to be Jesus' mother in this document because uh, according to this document, she was without sin. The idea of the Immaculate Conception may come to mind. This may be where they get this from. Let me list one more rejected gospel, the Gospel of Thomas. This entire gospel is a bunch of sayings attributed to Jesus to include this one. Ladies, hang on to your hats if you have one. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary Magdalene leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom. I guess transgenderism isn't a recent phenomenon. (laughs) So I could go on and on, though. But there's some twisted stuff here, isn't there? But it was these kinds of writings, though, that Dan Brown appealed to in his quote-unquote research for his book, The Da Vinci Code. And he falsely accused church leaders of somehow failing God and humanity for not including these kinds of strange writings in the Bible. Aren't you glad that they're not? But before we jump into a whirlwind tour of Luke, though, along with what I call some surprises, let me give you a couple of points real briefly about the idea of inspiration. And it is important that we do just kind of uh, touch on this. You know, Paul told Timothy, last letter he would ever write. He was in, again, the Mamertine prison in Rome. And here's what he says about Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable 
for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In other words, Paul's conviction was that anything that could be called Scripture originated with God himself. And that the words of Scripture are not man's words only. And I love what Alistair Begg says about this. If you know who Alistair Begg is, you know, he's a great guy. I I, I wish I had his accent. He's great. But he says, we have essentially a dual authorship, Begg says. So it's true to say that Paul wrote Romans. It's equally true to say that God wrote Romans. So we have both here going on. And so with that said, let's not assume, though, concerning the issue of inspiration, of where the scriptures came from, that the Bible is simply a matter of where God tells his prophets exactly what to say, to write down. For example, you know, we don't, we don't take the gospel of Luke as a result of God saying to Luke, hey, Luke, take a letter. That's not how it worked. There are many passages in the Bible where this is the case. But when it comes to Luke, this does not happen anywhere in. And so in the first three verses of Luke's gospel, we're going to find some, some things about how he actually put things together. And so I want you to turn with me there to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Because again, this is important that we, we cover this. We're going to cover a little bit more about this next week as well. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So what do we have here? Simply put, the inspiration of the scripture includes the how and the what. In other words, as Luke did the research as to what to put into his gospel, the Spirit of God directed him and guided him in the entire process. Without a doubt, there were eyewitness accounts, and there were other writings that he could have included, but he didn't. And the finished product, what we have right here, is how God used Luke to write down an orderly account of the life of Jesus. It also includes how, as far as he organizing the material. And you're going to see that there are different ways that, that Luke organized the accounts. And then if you read the other Gospels, you see that some of the same material is different in Matthew and Mark. Again, there's a lot that we can say, a whole lot, but we got to move on. And finally, we need to understand just a little bit about the difference between peop- the way people back in the day wrote stories, biographies, and the way that we understand them today. In our day, when we read biography, we want to know everything there is to know about the individual that we're, that we're reading about, right? We, all, we want to know the, the who's, the what's, the when's, the why's, the wherefore's about the individual that we're interested in reading in this biography. But back in the day, especially when it came to the life of Christ, it wasn't that way so much. For example, how about the years between the time when he was 12 in the temple and the time he was 30? What happened to him then? You want to know? You want, you want to find out what's going on? You know, we would want to know. But back in the day, they didn't really care so much about that. But because nature abhors a vacuum, many attempts have been made to find out and to kind of surmise maybe what happened to Jesus in those 18 years. And one of those explanations is that Jesus actually made a pilgrimage to India to learn the sacred wisdom of their religion. And I say, eh, no, it's not that's not what he did. 
And so in the first century, people were not all that concerned, though, about things like Jesus missing 18 years. What they were concerned about, primarily two things. Number one, the words and the deeds pertaining to Jesus and his greatness, like every other biography. And second, the effect that he had on others' lives. And so it's these things that we're going to dive into as we go through uh, the Gospel of Luke. You know, who he is, what he did, and the effect he had on people's lives. And so with that, just a little bit of orientation, let's now go on a whirlwind tour of the Gospel of Luke so that we might get to know a little bit what, what we're getting ourselves into. Follow along. Chapters 1 and 2, little preview here. The births and the early lives of John the Baptist and Jesus. It's pretty straightforward. But you know, what surprised me, though, about this as I was reading through is what happened with Simeon. Remember when Jesus was presented in the temple, and he's about six weeks old. Simeon takes him up in his arms, and then he said this. Jesus was God's salvation. Prepared for all people, notice the order, a light for the revelation for the Gentiles and glory to the people of Israel. Now, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jewish man Simeon, Mary and Joseph, Jews, and Jesus is Jewish Messiah. And the priority here was not on Jews, but on Gentiles. That was kind of surprising. Chapter 3, preview. Ministry of John the Baptist. And he's a fiery guy, wasn't he? And Jesus' genealogy also, tracing his lineage all the way back to Adam and ultimately back to God. And what was surprising here is that Jesus, or that John, preached repentance. He preached hellfire. He preached that Jesus was going to be baptizing in the spirit and fire. He was going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And after saying all of that, Luke's, Luke responds and Luke you know, identifies John's preaching as good news, the gospel. Here he is preaching hellfire. He's preaching damnation. He's preaching, you better repent. And this is the gospel. This is good news. Will we say that today? Surprising. Chapter four, previews. Jesus' temptation, his rejection at Nazareth, his hometown, and his acceptance of his authority at Capernaum. What I found in, in surprising here is that in Capernaum, who was it that really recognized who Jesus was? The hint was not the religious leaders. It was the demons that recognized who Jesus was. See, the religious leaders should have known better, but they apparently didn't. It was the demons that called Jesus out. Chapter 5, previews. Jesus calling of three disciples, perhaps even four. I'm thinking right now, perhaps of, of uh, Andrew. Uh, doesn't list there, but uh, he did call Peter, James, and John from their fishing task, plus Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector who was so bold to sit in the tax collection booth. Leprosy and paralysis, Jesus healed them. And what's surprising to me is that Jesus used the paralyzed man as an object lesson and to get the ire raised of the Pharisees who were attending this event. This man was brought to Jesus by four friends. Couldn't get in, so in, into his life, in, in his space. And so what they do, as we know, went on the roof, dug through the tiles, and right in front of Jesus, there he was. He was there 
not to get his sins forgiven, although that was a great thing. And that was, that was the, tru- the crux of the whole issue here. But he was there for healing. But what did Jesus say to this man? I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Now, what did that do? It set him up. Jesus set himself up to be accused of being a blasphemer because he knew what the Pharisees would do. So that's kind of interesting there. And we're going to talk about that. Chapter 6, previews. Sabbath breaking, inside and outside the synagogue. Choosing his apostles to include Judas. And it says here, the, the wording of the scripture says, he didn't say, it didn't say he was a traitor. It says he became a traitor, which I thought was interesting there. And then he preached a sermon similar to the Sermon on the Mount. The, the scholars call this in, in Luke here, Sermon on the Plain. But it's the same kind of material that Jesus was preaching. Surprising here for me was Luke specifically highlights that the crowd sought him out to touch him. And then Luke actually says this, for power came out from him. That was a, an interesting uh, statement that he would make there. Of course, Luke being a doctor, he's kind of talking about health care and that kind of thing. Chapter 7, previous, healing of the Roman soldiers, the centurion's slave, servant. In John's request, you know, people were sent to John, from John the Baptist, who was in jail now at this point, and he's asking, are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? What surprised me here is that Jesus commends the faith of a Gentile centurion there in front of the, in front of the Jews, in front of the people there. And this centurion recognized the authority of Jesus, which is kind of interesting because how many recognize the authority of Jesus among the Jewish crowd? This was a Gentile who was very, his very presence, because he was always dressed in his uniform, reminded the Jews that they were under Roman occupation. And Jesus commended this centurion for his faith. It's amazing. Chapter 8, previews. Women's ministry and parable of the sower. Jesus welcomed women in his ministry. And he preached the parable of the sower. And this was not one of the more surprising things to me when I, and you know, I read it before many times, and then, but just hearing it again, just reading through. Remember the story that, that here Jesus was teaching about the parable of the sower. And then all of a sudden, his family shows up outside. And then his mom, his brothers, sisters. And then someone says, hey, Jesus, you got your family out here, and they want to talk to you. Well, what did Jesus do? What did he not do, actually? He didn't say, time out. You know, I want to go see what my family has to say. What did he say? Who's my family? Who's my mom? Who are my brothers and sisters? You guys are. He completely, apparently, dissed his nuclear family. Completely. Chapter 9, previews. The apostles' missionary journey, he sent them out. The Samaritans did not receive Jesus. And a surprise to me was in in verse 57, Jesus heard this man say to him, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. But what did Jesus do about that? Instead of saying, come on, let's, let's go, what did Jesus say? You know, birds have their nests and foxes have holes. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He seemed to push this person who was so eager to follow him away. But that was interesting. Chapter 10, Jesus sends now 72 disciples on a missions trip. 
forerunners. You know, go everywhere, Jesus says. Go everywhere I'm, where I'm going to go. And then a lawyer was asking Jesus, how do I obtain eternal life? This is the first time of two times that two individuals actually said, how can I obtain eternal life? And what was surprising to me is that in answer to the question, you know, Jesus, as a result of that interchange, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan was a hero, and he tells the expert in Jewish law, lawyer, go and be like that Samaritan. If you were Jewish, you would know that's bad. So again, that was a surprise to me. Chapter 11, the first of two times that Jesus specifically talks about prayer and the persistency of prayer, our need to do that. And then Jesus thoroughly, thoroughly insults the lawyers, the experts in the Jewish law. And what was surprised to me is how unpolitically correct Jesus really was here. Because when Jesus was, was kind of whamming on the Pharisee, some of the lawyers came up to Jesus and said, you know, Jesus, you know, when you offended the Pharisees, you offended us too. One thing he did not do was, oh, I'm sorry. You know what he did, right? Woe to you lawyers as well. And then he went and, and pronounced woe after woe after woe on top of that. So he not only ground the Pharisees into powder, he also ground the lawyers into powder too. Not exactly a nice guy here. Chapter 12. Jesus talked about God's special care for his people. And then Jesus' exhortation to his disciples to be ready that when the Son of Man comes. And what was surprising to me is that Jesus gave many warnings to his disciples against falling away and to be ready when he comes. Now, you think about that, then you think about what happens with most presentations of the gospel. You pray the prayer and you're good. Everything's fine, right? You're eternally secure. Why then did Jesus say here to his disciples, beware and don't fall away? Interesting. We're going to talk about that. Chapter 13. Repent or perish, literally. Jesus. Uh, there are some people that came to Jesus and asking him about a contemporary issue that was going on at that time. And then Jesus, to these very people who were asking him the question, said, do you think that you're any worse sinners or any better off than these guys who perished at the hands of wicked Herod? I tell you, if you don't repent, you're going to perish. In our vernacular, Jesus basically told these people, turn or burn. You know, not very nice here. And then Jesus also gave a warning about Israel's spiritual barrenness. Surprise here is that there was a time that Jesus healed a woman who was bent over for 18 years. On a Sabbath, he, he, he touched the woman. He told her, straighten up. And then the synagogue leader said this to this woman. Hey, listen. There are six other days you can come get healed. Don't get healed on the Sabbath. Can you imagine the hard-heartedness of this religious leader? And of course, Jesus called him out and said, listen, you're all messed up. You should rejoice over this, this woman who is now healed. He, she was bound by Satan for 18 years, and now she's set free. And all you have to say is that come another day and get healed? Are you kidding me? Chapter 14, previews. Healing of the Sabbath, on a Sabbath, in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Can you imagine what that must have been like if you were one of those Pharisees? 
And then Jesus also talks about counting the cost of following and what that means. And what was surprising to me was that he was invited to this dinner party with the Pharisee. He started instructing these people on how to throw a party. If you're going to throw a party, don't just, don't just invite the people who can pay you back. Don't just invite the people who, who are, are well-to-do. Invite the people who are lame, who are poor, who can't pay you back. And he, he was seeing some other people here who were at the uh, place where the, the, the seats of the house, the best of the house. And he was telling these people, listen, don't go there. Come in the back here. And so because if, they, if somebody else wants to come up here who's better than you, you're going to be humiliated. And so he's giving an illustration here of if you're going to humble yourself, then you'll be exalted and vice versa. So here Jesus was. He was invited to this, to this dinner party. And he was barking out these instructions. That's kind of interesting here. Chapter 15, Jesus answered the Pharisees and the scribes' accusations of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he did that in not just one, not just two, but three parables in answer to that accusation. Jesus begins here with the series of these parables by accusing these guys of shirking their responsibilities because they were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people. But they were shirking their responsibility. And then he finally ends up and really just nailing the Pharisees to the wall when he was talking about the parable of the prodigal son. Chapter 16, parables about pitfalls of riches, pointing out the errors of the Pharisees who loved money. Now, I couldn't find any surprise in that chapter because it's pretty, pretty straightforward here. Chapter 17, lessons about obedience and healing of the ten lepers and teaching about the end times in his return. What was surprising here was that Jesus rebuked of the disciples' alarm. Because he was talking about, if somebody offends you, you need to forgive them. Up to seven times a day, if they come to you and they say, I repent, forgive them. The answer that disciples gave to Jesus in this, he said, Lord, increase our faith. But how did Jesus respond to that? You don't need your faith increased. You need your obedience increased. And then he gives some some, uh, teaching about that. Chapter 18. Second time here, Jesus teaches about prayer and the persistency of prayer. And the second time in this chapter also, Jesus addresses someone who asks him how to obtain eternal life. And Jesus then heals a blind beggar. And what was surprising about this was, again, the issue of the blind beggar, how the crowd was walking with Jesus in front of him, behind him, and the beggar was crying out, who is this? How can I, how can I get to Jesus? And the crowd was saying, Be quiet. Be quiet. The master doesn't want to bother with you. Can you imagine that? You've been ministered to by Jesus, and now you don't want anybody else to have Jesus ministered to. That's pretty surprising to me. Chapter 19, Jesus visits Zacchaeus. He enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, as we're going to talk about Lamb Selection Day, where God's Lamb was rejected on that day. What was surprising here is Zacchaeus' story. If you read through, if you remember, Zacchaeus, he was so excited about Jesus coming to his house. And he said, Lord, I'm going to give back everything that I have stolen from from my fellow Jews. And how did Jesus respond to this? He said, today, salvation has come to this house. I thought we were saved by grace. But what was Zacchaeus doing? He was obeying the law. He was making restitution. But Jesus says, Salvation has come to his house because he too 
is a son of Abraham. I thought that was kind of surprising there. Chapter 20, intense temple teaching. We, we've heard about these. For example, they're, they're asking Jesus, what authority do you have to cleanse a temple? And who should we pay? Should we pay taxes or not? And the Sadducees were talking to Jesus about the resurrection. And then finally, Jesus is saying, whose son is Christ? Is he David's son? And he was talking about, you know, Psalm 110. And the surprise that I came away with, he was so bold, you know, to talk truth, to speak truth, not only to the Pharisees and the scribes, but also talk about them <laughs> with the common people that were there. And then chapter 21, Jesus' commendation of a widow and the value of her offering. She only put in a couple of pennies, but Jesus called her out and commended her and said, she put in more than anybody else because what she gave was all she had. And then Jesus proclaims the end times in chapter 21 and warns his hearers of what's to come. And the surprise here, it's very clear in the context that Jesus was talking to his disciples and he warned them in that sort of an end of tribulation uh, context here regarding his return and to not allow their hearts to be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that day of tribulation would not come upon them suddenly. So I think it was kind of an interesting uh, thing that Jesus was doing with his disciples and how he was couching everything in the end times. Chapter 22, upper room activities. Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Peter's denial, Jesus' trial before the council. And here's what I found interesting is that apparently Judas Iscariot was present at the Last Supper. It says that right there. It's very interesting. In chapter 23, Jesus before Pilate. He was appearing before Pilate. Jesus appears before Herod. And then Jesus dies, is, is on the cross, and he's, and he's buried. What I found surprising here is that Pilate announced to the Jews that even wicked Herod did not find anything to accuse Jesus about. Even Herod. Isn't it amazing? And then finally, chapter 24, the resurrection of the Lord. Amen. And his ascension. That's chapter 24. Surprise? The first and only time the phrase Lord Jesus has been used in the Gospel of Luke. And with that, our whirlwind tour of Luke is done. I'm excited to walk through this with you over the next little bit of time. And though I only offered one surprise per chapter, there's a lot of other surprises. I could have spent all day telling you the surprises that I had here. And so now we come full circle. And my advice to any of you who have access to you know, the Da Vinci Code or, or books like that or, or media like that, throw it away. You don't need it. You don't need it. Or at the very least, if you're going to engage in that kind of stuff, do it with a very skeptical eye. Judge the book by the standard of Scripture rather than the other way around. See, admittedly, Dan Brown's book is two decades old, but how many more documents are out there now that were created since then to deceive, if possible, even the elect in our day. We've got to be very careful about what we see. And so allow me to give all of us some strong medicine here when it comes to things that we choose to spend our time with. Every piece, every piece of information 
is educated. Would you agree with that? Every piece, whether it's a movie or a book, anything online or even music, it's all education. They're teaching us a worldview about things and maybe even some things that are, you know, specific. There really is no such thing, is there, of a mindless entertainment. Everything is instructive. See, what we choose to spend our time engaging with is what we choose to educate ourselves with. That's why we must choose to place the priority of our education, our engagement with information of any kind, put the priority upon God's word. Because then we can take and we can evaluate the things that we do have to take in later on. Because if we don't, we won't be able to discern good from error if, if we don't take the time and really put a priority on God's word. So let's not make the mistake that we can outwit the master deceiver. And he is of the world and he puts out his stuff and he can deceive people just like this. We know this. He is much too powerful and much more cunning than we are. How we need the Lord to protect us against the wiles of the devil. We must be equipped by taking up the full armor of God and by using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And as we do, we will then be ready to engage the enemy, as our brother Paul said in Ephesians 6, 10-12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against causing powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are our opponents. These are. We need to be ready and we need to be able to engage this. And so let me remind you of the Luke read-through challenge this week. Let's start 2023 off right by immersing ourselves in the word of God. And then let's be careful to do what he commands. And so as I land the plane for this first message in Luke, let me ask all of us a question. Where are you going? Where would the end of 2023 find you? Where are you going? Especially spiritually. How greatly do you long to be in close with the Lord this year? He wants us close to him. Even as we live in the hectic pace that our culture demands of us, he wants us close. And so, am I, are you willing to pay the price to be close to Jesus? But Jesus gives us the cost. and He lets us know how to do this. You know, what we've heard, you know, I've, I've said it many times, because, you know, I've been meditating on, on, on John 13 through 15 uh, as of late. And we've heard these words of Jesus. They're precious words. We've heard them often. But let me just share them again. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now listen to this. And my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Is this what you want? It is possible to do this. It's possible to be friends with Jesus. It's possible to be intimate with the Lord. Are you willing to pay the price? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your spirit. Thank you, Father, for sending your spirit to 
Luke, the Gentile, the one who has told us a lot about your heart for the nations. Lord, it's always been your purpose. It's always been your intent to use your people to reach out to the rest of the world. And Lord, Luke, as the Gentile, was able to do a masterful job at putting things together to give an orderly account so that we Gentiles could understand about salvation, about Jewish salvation, as it were, by understanding and knowing the Jewish Messiah. Father, thank you so much for this. Thank you for his writing. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you'll give us an excitement about your word, that you'll give us a determination now more than ever before to obey your word. And not to do it because we want to impress you, not to do it because we want to impress the world or show everybody how holy we are or whatever the case may be. But Lord, that we will do this for one reason and one reason only because we are grateful, Lord Jesus, for you saving us. We are grateful for you taking our sins away. We are grateful, Lord, because we want to be close to you. We want to be your friends. And even though, and Lord, you told us, just point blank, you said, we can be your friends if we do what you commanded us. So Lord, I pray that you help us. Help us to do these things because we love you, because you've loved us first. Now I pray, Lord, as we turn our attention now to our giving and also uh, to our singing, I pray that these acts of worship will be acceptable in your sight. And we'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name.